the people they're imagining are the audience for these films might endure the squished slash stretched interlaced copies that do just get thrown up on Amazon Prime. Oh, you know, yeah. like no one's going to complain. People yeah. who are taking the time to watch a Pune movie like that aren't going to be the ones raising the flag saying exactly. like Colin Fowl on it. You know, they're like these freaks. You know, yeah. like they'll, they'll watch anything. They're going to watch right. a Pune film. Like they'll watch anything. <laughs> Beggars can't be choosers. That's so funny. Puners can't Working through just, we, in this conversation. Puners we can't just, be choosers. <laughs> yeah, puners cannot be choosers. <laughs> just working working through like all these weird things that I almost picked for the border weeks. Funny that this conversation <laughs> just brought all that shit back up. Yeah. That's like me and Bertolucci, you know. I've been so close to pulling the trigger several times. Yeah. We were almost hanging out with the dreamers. We were almost, you know. Going to Tuscany. Ah, oh, jeez. Yeah, you've been uh, you've been playing footsie with Bernardo Bertolucci. <laughs> you got to take it above the table. Now. It's true. Ever since I was Bernardo pilled by a uh, man that looked like Socrates. <laughs> the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. That's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Saunders, and with me today, as always, are Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasiulis. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts is tasked with selecting a theme for the week, and the other two hosts then have to pick films that respond to that theme, whether they address it directly or perhaps, you know, buck up against it a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> just just a little bit. And, you know, I, I often have the most fun when we, when we buck up because I think it really gets to the spirit of what we all bring to the table. So, you know, there was a bit of bucking up this week, but uh, I think I was inviting it a little bit with my theme. Uh, you know, I was thinking about some of the films we had watched recently, specifically thinking about um, a subplot of one film we had watched recently. And that was this throwaway, terrible subplot in the uh, 80s comedy, The Great Outdoors, the John Candy and Dan Aykroyd film. And it's got this really dumb subplot with one of their sons who has a relationship with the like a towny romance of sorts. It's out in Wisconsin and summer vacation, having some love. And I just thought, this is pathetic. Give me a break. And I was thinking about how sometimes it is a fun topic to explore in movies. It's usually very spirited. The idea of summer loving, you know, love is in the air in the summertime. It's warm. People are just like colliding. And sometimes those passions are fiery and intense. And because of that, they they fade very fast and the, the lovers part. And so that, that was my idea for this week was how about some summer loving? And, um, while we have some films that are very literally telling us that we've uh, entered the loving period well after summertime, and another film that is a bit more nebulous in terms of its its uh, time period, in terms of the seasons, I still think 
you both did address the topic uh, in the way you bucked up against it. And I'm thinking about uh, Summer Breeze and feeling so fine. These movies in their own way had me feeling so fine on a, a summer evening when I when I watched them. So without further ado, let, let's dive in and hear a little bit about um, <laughs> the way you both managed to think about this theme and how you internalized it. So Marsh, uh, you lead the way. What what film did, did you bring to the table? Well, I was dangerously close to taking us to Tuscany with Liv Tyler and Bernardo Bertolucci, but I swerved at the last minute when I remembered this particular film that I chose. And uh, what enticed me really was I realized we have not done a Korean film on this podcast. And I, of course, when we were doing Borderlands, I thought about Park Chan-wook and JSA, and it had sort of been on my mind that uh, that was an area we have still yet to explore. And so I recalled a film I'd seen many years ago that had something of a, of a summer romance. And when I imagined us talking about this film, I thought it would be uh, fun and, and funny. And so uh, I chose Night and Day from 2008, the Hong Sang-soo film. And it is uh, a tale of uh, romance, I guess, uh, which by, by Hong's standard is very uh, disappointing and, and awkward, right? But uh, the film concerns, like, lay out the sort of plot here and then talk about it more broadly, but it, it concerns uh, Sung Nam, a painter from Korea who, before the film begins, uh, has been implicated in some marijuana smoking with exchange students from the United States. And his name somehow uh, gets passed on to the police, at which point he flees Korea for Paris. And so the film opens uh, with Sung Nam arriving in Paris, where he has a cigarette and a very awkward encounter with a Frenchman who tells him at the end of their encounter, be careful. <laughs> and what follows is uh, anything but as Sung Nam separated from his wife and living at a Korean hostel uh, in Paris uh, goes through uh, a series of relationships with, with uh, an ex-girlfriend and two art students and some other colorful characters he meets along the way, <laughs> along the way. And uh, yeah, that's sort of the setup for it. And, you know, like many Hong Sang-soo films, it has his identifiable qualities, right? It's very chatty. It's very low budget. It's very sort of structural and minimal. Um, and I think explicitly, you know, here kind of doing a French new wave thing. It was his first film abroad. Uh, and that's something he would return to a lot in, you know, the future years. And so it starts in, in August, so it does have this explicit summer element, and the title itself even uh, refers to a conversation had about how uh, the sun sets so late in Paris compared to Seoul uh, that you, it's hard to distinguish night from day. And... That's really, I guess, all I want to say for now. Uh, a couple maybe like basic things, right? It is notable for being Hong's first digital 
movie. Um, he had shot film up until this point, so he's continued to shoot digital ever since this moment, although it didn't really change his style very much. He was already doing uh, kind of the same thing on film, and it's his longest film to date. He's not known for making long films, so this film clocks in at about two and a half hours, so it does have this kind of like, you know, for him, this kind of epic uh, and even novelistic quality to it. Uh, and yeah, that's uh, that's night and day. Absolutely. It is a very much so feels like reading a novel. I, I actually watched the movie outside um, <laughs> as the sun was setting, feeling the summer breeze. And also because that's typically where I'll read a book, the film watching it felt like I was reading a novel. It was very relaxing. So so thank you for that. Um, I came back inside to watch your film, Andy, and had um, a very different experience uh, from the very relaxing one I had with um, Marsh's film. So tell us a little bit about what what you brought. Yeah, I um, picked a film that I've been meaning to see. Uh, this is a film that I'd, I'd heard of, and it was very much up my alley, and, and I was looking for a reason to, to watch it. Not that I, I needed one, but when you gave us the topic... Uh, and I sort of like looked into the film at first. I, I, I kind of questioned whether or not I thought it would be appropriate for, for this theme and, 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 you know, uh, everything that you laid out. Uh, but like once I sort of looked at it a little bit more and once I really kind of like dived into it, I thought it fit your prompt very, very well. Um, the film that I chose is uh, the film Mofi from 2019, directed by South African filmmaker Oliver Hermanus. This film is set in 1981 uh, during South Africa's prolonged border war with Angola. And the film focuses on uh, one character particularly, a young man named Nicholas van der Svart, who is like uh, millions of other South African white men at the time, conscripted into the South African Defense Forces to eventually head to that war-torn border region to uphold the apartheid regime and their fight against the spread of communism. But there's a lot more going on here. Uh, Hermanus uses this story, which comes from uh, a memoir of the same name by a man whose last name is Van der Merve. Uh, and, and really, the memoir and the film is, is looking at this experience through the eyes of a young gay man who must face the traumas and horrors of, of, of being a, a gay person uh, in a regime that is, uh, to say hostile towards gays, uh, would be putting it lightly. I mean, it's basically illegal in South Africa. And the word Mofi itself is a uh, Afrikaans word that is a very derogatory slur for basically being a gay, effeminate man. It's a very loaded title. And Hermanus like talked about that a little bit, saying that, you know, for people who don't speak Afrikaans, 
the title, uh, you know, might not make a whole lot of sense, but it's an extremely, extremely hurtful and inflammatory word used to basically uh, belittle and categorize uh, gay men in South Africa. Uh, while in this, uh, you know, being trained to go off to head to this conflict, Nicholas has a very small, very fleeting, very brief romance with another soldier. Uh, and, and that's really kind of all I, I want to say about it from there. I think that there's a lot going on that we're going to sort of pick apart. I think it's a very beautiful film. It's a, 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 a very intense film, uh, as you sort of, I think... Uh, intimated in your introduction, Ryan. But I would say more broadly, part of the reason why I, I think it is a good fit uh, is it was shot and takes place uh, during the first several months of the year, January, February, I believe, which is winter for us, but south of the equator, that's their summertime. So it does take place in summer. Okay. And, you know, as you describe this kind of like, you know, summer romance that happens at camp, well, I see this as a basically really fucked up summer camp. You know, the the, the, the barracks that sure. they're in. <laughs> you know, it's basically a bunch of young men going off to camp. Uh, of course, the camp is taking part in a racist apartheid-fueled uh, war. Um, and, and I guess the other thing that I should just say to contextualize it um, is that some people on the surface might find it very difficult to sort of engage with this subject matter, especially looking at this time and this conflict through the lens of the, you know, white uh, oppressors of the apartheid regime. And, and that is specifically like what Hermanus, you know, really found to be the interesting challenge for him. Hermanus, I should point out, is a a, uh, a man from South Africa who is of mixed race uh, in their classification that is referred to as colored. Uh, so he is not a white man. Uh, he is also a gay man from South Africa. And so, you know, he wanted to, to really sort of go into this journey uh, through the white oppressor's eyes as a sort of like challenge in empathy. And I think, you know, at least to end this introduction, that um, it's a very, 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 some would maybe say controversial view or entry point, but I think it's one that he meets with uh, incredible sensitivity. Uh, so that is the film that I chose, Mofi from 2019. Thank you. Thank you both. One thing that I think both of the films address very well in terms of the prompt, this idea of a summer fling, was the fact that these romances are taking place away from home. In Night and Day, we have someone who is, he's in France. He's in a completely foreign space for him. And then in Mophie, we have someone who is within the confines of their own country, but really pushing up against the border of it. You know, they're, they're far from the comforts of home. And that's where both of these summer flings are occurring. And I think that just broadly thinking about summer flings in cinema and the idea of having a fling with someone over the summertime, the first thing you think of is being away from home, whether that's at summer camp or just being in a, in a town that's, that's far off because it then feels 
like an isolated experience in a certain way. The romance then becomes localized to a place that's away from home and makes it feel even more like a fling. So that was something I was at least thinking about as a way of bridging these films, is having these protagonists who are outside of their comfort zones experiencing these loves, albeit in radically different ways. Well, and it's not just their comfort zones, but their societies. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a a big connection between them is the notions of masculinity that are instilled in both of the main characters, I think are, you know, they're manifesting away from these places, right? Um, And I think that's very pointed in both films, you know, like, uh, you know, Sung Nam is uh, (laughs) kind of a clueless dude, you know, like uh, he... He's way out of his depth in France, you know, and he even has uh, some confessions to that effect where he's like, I don't understand anyone here, you know. Uh, But this alienation that he feels, um, obviously, you know, is very heightened by his situation. He's worried about his marijuana charge. He calls his wife in the middle of the night every night and just cries to her. Um, And it's also, of course, day in Korea when he calls her night and day, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then obviously in the case, you know, of of our other film, Nicholas, uh, going from this hyper-masculine society, you know, this like white supremacist South African society where his dad's giving him like big boobs magazine uh, before he goes off to the barracks, right? I mean, and it feels so suffocating, right? We don't see Korea in night and day, but we see, you know, even just his sort of household and the way everyone acts and everyone is treated, right? And so, yeah, I mean, both films very much center on this specific notion of Korean masculinity and South African masculinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, I would build upon that by saying, I think that both of these films are explorations of toxic masculinity. Uh, but, but two different kinds of manifestations of them. Um, because I think that, you know, what Nicholas is surrounded by is obviously a very violent, threatening, you know, physically, threatening uh, form of, of toxic masculinity. Uh, but, you know, Sung Nam, I mean, this guy's a piece of shit too, you know? <laughs> and, and at times, you know, um, really, like, exhibits, I think, some of, like, you know, some just very, like, predatory traits as well for a, for a man. <laughs> to say uh, the least, yeah. To say the least, you know? <laughs> and so I think, yeah, in, in a way, like, both of these films are looking at how characters navigate that idea of, of masculinity. Um, I think that, you know, both are sort of in their own ways really kind of guided by them. I think Nicholas is guided by it uh, in a much more like overt and, and conscious way. And I think that like Sung Nam is uh, just a Sora sort of like really kind of uh, prisoner of his own neuroses uh, in a, in a, in a certain respect, you know, there's a lot about him that, that uh, for our pleasure remains, you know, unseen to him, right? That that we can sort of see the wheels turning in a way, you know, for him that that he can't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's really a comedy of errors that that is is anchored by his 
his yeah his his uh, inability to kind of recognize uh, what a piece of shit he is. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's funny thinking about these films having uh, a toxic masculinity bridge between them, but then thinking about you know how how there there are still some distinct differences then with the perspective of that toxic masculinity because with Mofi as you mentioned Andy as a non-white filmmaker but as a gay man there is definitely this outsider perspective of looking at a white supremacist regime and having a perspective and an opinion on what that toxic masculinity does to all of these men, how it turns them into self-hating killing machines and just general hatred all around for their fellow man. But then the perspective of night and day, right? It's a Hong Sang Soo movie. He's essentially a surrogate for Hong Sang Soo. And the film feels like, like all the great Hong Sang Soo films, like an open wound of sorts of him just honestly presenting himself warts and all and saying, these are things I'm struggling with, and here are some here's some self critique here. But because of that, it ends up being so funny and so perceptive, and reveals so much about how people end up behaving this way and what it does to everyone around them. You know? Yeah, I mean, Hermanus like talked about that. He actually departed quite a bit from the source material, even though it shares, you know, uh, much of the same, you know, content and ideas, but, but he actually ended up adding in, uh, things that, that he personally experienced. Like there's a, a very traumatic episode. Uh, we get this sort of like flashback at one point in the film to a very traumatic episode that Nicholas experienced, you know, um, as a curious young man starting to become aware of sexuality and aware of his sexuality uh, that that wasn't in the memoir, but was something that the director, Oliver Hermanus, experienced when he was a young gay man starting to, to come of age and, and find, you know, that he was curious about his body and curious about other bodies. So there is a lot of the personal in there, but, but what he's also doing is trying to explore how, you know, machines of power generate these ideas, how they quite literally like train men to feel a certain way about, you know, what it means to be a strong man, what it means to be a good man, what it means to be, quote, the right man, you know, the right, the correct race, the correct, you know, sexual orientation, all of those things. And so I don't think he's necessarily trying to to get us to empathize in a way where we kind of feel bad. And I think that was a charge that some people have thrown against this film. It's like, is he just trying to make us like sort of sympathize with the oppressors like oh poor them that they also have to deal with all this abuse but but no what he's really trying to do is get us to like actually explore how so many ideas about race and gender and sex are quite literally like beaten into us and and drilled mm -hmm. into us and and then how those things become weaponized and and certainly in a broader sense weaponized by states you know against other peoples right another connection then is i think uh, you know both of these countries and their 
conservative, anti-communist sort of attitudes. Because in Night and Day, there's a very comical scene where Sungnam is drunk at this kind of like house party uh, and he causes a scene because another guy there is from North Korea. And he starts like, you know, just totally, Freaking yeah, out. he's just like, what do you think about Kim Il-sung, you know? Just like going way too hard for no reason. Yes? Kim This poor guy just like being just nice and hanging out with everyone. But again, I think, yeah, he's conditioned, right, by his uh, society, by all their, you know, values, etc., right, that he just, his knee-jerk reaction, you know, uh, is just to, to freak out for no reason. Dude, I was dying. <laughs> In so the, two, the two scenes that those guys have together. Yes. yes. There is first, you know, his his initial kind of reaction, you know, and it is fucking hysterical. But then the follow up when they bump into each other again and he's he's cooled down a bit. Right. The way the second scene plays out is fucking incredible. It's brilliant. And it's you know, it's another connection, I think, between this, this sort of stuff we're talking about and like the the sort of like feats of masculinity that are performed in both films. Right. Because. In night and day, you know, Sungnam and the North Korean guy end up arm wrestling, which is a, like a motif of the film is Sungnam beating everyone in arm wrestling. Yeah. It's like this weird thing, you know. It's you know, I guess for him, obviously, it's because he's confused and is just like you know this fragile dope, uh, and so he has to you know prove himself by arm wrestling, and then we get a lot of the you know, barracks, uh, soldier type, uh, stuff that you would maybe expect, uh, in a, you know, a film mm-hmm. where someone goes off to war, guys boxing, bare knuckle boxing for fun, you know, wrestling yeah. with each other. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 I think a scene that, that is somewhat similar, you know, in a very direct comparison then is, you know, at a certain point in the barracks when they've, you know, we're seeing these sequences of them being like brutally trained, and indoctrinated mentally, you know, you have the recruits at a certain point, or I should say the conscripts, you know, uh, all sitting around in their spare time and they decide to play spin the bottle. But it's a very twisted game of spin the bottle in which your partner, you don't kiss. Your partner, you're supposed to like just punch in the face, you know? And again, it's a really like interesting and some would almost even argue like heavy handed way of him showing the ways that men in these 
environments of toxic masculinity have to sort of create weird twisted barriers for physical intimacy you know mm -hmm. in this harsh environment their their form of touching has to be a form of like violent touch in the same way with like arm wrestling you know here's a meant uh, this moment of camaraderie between two men and yet it's a physical competition who's the stronger and again what i love in night and day is how at us, at, at the, in just this really clever way, we see the tensions of like North and Korea, North and South Korea, like play out at this like Parisian cafe over espresso and a cigarette, you know? Yeah. And the North Korean guy, particularly in this moment, like you see the desperation in his face when he loses to him. You know, you see the weight of feeling like, shit, is there national pride on the line here at this like, you know, this, this French like cafe, right? You know, and, and the defeated look in his eyes, I was just like rolling on the floor, like laughing, you know? It's so funny. I especially love too, after that first encounter with the North Korean student, when uh, Sung Nam drunkenly leaves, because he knows if he stays any longer, it's just gonna turn into chaos and he's gonna get angry and it might even become physical. That one of the other students disparagingly refers to Sung Nam as so bourgeois, <laughs> which I think is hysterical, thinking about these like Koreans in, in Paris being so radical that they're like pro Kim Il-sung, you know? <laughs> but I also think it's funny thinking about then the way that Sung Nam sort of self-diagnoses his behavior. This is very late in the film, probably two-thirds of the way through, if not more, but he has a come-to-God moment of sorts where he breaks down crying. Well, he has several of those. <laughs> yeah, he does, he does. But in, in one of them, he explicitly refers to the fact that he thinks his behavior is stemming from fear, that he's, like, acting out with such contempt and hate for the world because he's just really just afraid and he feels weak and he doesn't know how to respond in any other way. And I think it's interesting then that that self-diagnosis is also sort of the prescription offered for the troops in Mafi from the, the sergeants who are them. It, they think of themselves and their role in the boot camp as instilling that fear amongst everyone in order for them to grow contempt and hatred for the rest of the world. There's so much in Mofi, you know, in terms of their like training you know, that is really like highlighted. There's so much that is, is, is about attitude. That's, that's one of the things that the Lieutenant and the Sergeant are constantly like yelling at them about, you know, it isn't just that they're, they're learning to, you know, operate their weapons or dig trenches. How to do a fireman's carry. Right. How to, you know, yeah. Rescue a wounded comrade. It's, it's so much, so much of it is just about like this sort of, mental preparation for how to look at the world and how to recognize your enemy. Your enemy is anyone by their own logic that, that isn't a, a straight white South African man, basically, mm -hmm. you know, they, they lay out the enemies of the state and it's basically the, 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 the categories are, you know, blacks, black terrorists, communists, gays, lazy people, you know, uh, uh, people who are a drag on the state. I mean, it, it, it really is a, a complete like psychological overhaul that these recruits are going through and there's even more extreme forms or or levels of it that are 
you know, alluded to that become this really kind of like horrific specter looming over the recruits. Uh, they, they make reference to this place, Ward 22, that basically if, if the, the drill instructors discover something about you, you know, that perhaps you are sympathetic to the communists or that you are gay, you can be sent to a place for further, deeper psychological treatment. I'm putting that quotation marks. This place called Ward 22, which I discovered was an actual place. And there has been in more recent years, you know, a lot that has started to kind of come out about this Mm. place and actually how fucked up and terrifying it is. I don't know if you guys read up on this at all, but apparently like, you know, some of the things that happened at Ward 22, especially for gays, uh, you know, you know, once you were in the military and they make this point in the film, you belong to the state. I mean, that's what the drill instructors say to them. You no longer belong to yourself. You are the property of the South African government. And so they could take you and, and against your will, you know, put you in this, this, you know, insane asylum, they called it, or one of the young recruits calls it a loony bin, this, this hospital, Ward 22. And one of the fucked up things that the South African government did, which I discovered in my research, was forced gender reassignment surgery. So they would take young gay men and, and force them through gender reassignment surgery and turn them into women. They would change their gender because they would say, no, you're, you're actually then a woman. I mean, it's like crimes against humanity for these poor, unfortunate souls who found themselves like caught up in this absolutely twisted, I mean, Nazi level fucking shit. So I think, you know, again, for outsiders like us who don't know what something like Ward 22 means, you know, it just sounds like something like kind of ominous, but it adds to the, the, the deep, deep, deep anxiety that people like Nicholas have of, you know, showing who they really are in this regime. Well, we've, uh, you know, here at the Gauntlet, we've taken a cold, hard look at South Africa over the last year. You know, oh, that yeah, was, I was thinking about how this completes our trilogy, uh, which started, of course, with Durkee, which is uh, a white man's fantasy. Uh, <laughs> and then we did Come Back Africa, which was, you know... Uh, much more realistic about the struggles of black people in South Africa. And then, yeah, now we get the inside outside look. So we're, we've been looking from multiple angles here. Oh yeah. Right. I guess you just mentioning multiple angles then (laughs) makes me think about one of the things that I thought really separated both of these films. And I'd be curious to hear about your experience and your reaction with this. And that is, um, just the formal style and visual style of both of these films. It was wild starting with Night and Day as I did last night, which of course is quintessential Hong. Most of the sequences are a single sequence shot. Very, very, very little camera movement. It might be punctuated by a zoom, that really distinct Hong Sing Su type zoom. But the film is is segmented out that way, where we have these dates that are presented before every scene as if it's sort of like a diary entry. And then we get that day, usually presented again in a very minimalist style. And then I put on Mafi and... You know, I still haven't really come to terms with how I felt about the visual style of the film, but... Compared to Hong, it's 
gratuitously overshot, right? It's like a contemporary digital, a very pretty looking film. And in many respects, beautiful. There are, there are stunning images in Mafi, but also a lot of those images only last on screen for <laughs> two seconds, right? I mean, thinking about a Hong conversation, a scene that could maybe last four or five minutes long, and we've got two people sitting there and it's all a sequence shot. And then we have a scene in Mafi maybe where they're watching an instructional propaganda film uh, on a TV. And there's like 30 shots mm-hmm. of that room, of all of these faces, the, the just side by side, them looking at the screen. And it was a really radical contrast formally going back and forth between both of these films. And I guess then, if this is an open question, I was curious what you th- both thought of the visual style of, of Mafi um, and it being so beautiful, but also, you know, frantically like edited well, I think, you know, for me, it, uh, I, I, I noticed, uh, that the producer of this film, uh, had also produced Ida, the Polish film. And that mm. sort of like unlocked a certain way for me to look at it. And I think at the end of the day, cause I, I gotta say, you know, whatever, no offense to anyone, but Ida, not my thing. I did not really care for that film. And I, th- and I think think the visual style here is more interesting it is still very much you know let's shoot it in in academy ratio to be more like the 80s let's wash it out a little bit but i think what saved it for me and why i ultimately ended up liking it is because it's firmly rooted in nicholas's perceptions and his subjectivity Mm -hmm. you know so i think it's perfectly uh you know well and good to show uh, the beauty of this landscape and then the horrors of this institution. You know, they are side by side in this film. But I like, you know, I, I think I think you're overselling it being overshot. I mean, I think like throughout most of the film, there's like a limited perspective. We're not we don't get coverage of scenes. There may be a lot sure. of shots, but it's not conventional coverage, you know, because it is rooted in really like, close to we're close to his body we're seeing what he sees Mm -hmm. we're we're close you know and it it almost felt like at times you know for better or worse like son of saul i thought of that too yeah you know where you're almost like attached to this the camera's like attached to the character you know yeah um and ultimately i ended up um you know kind of liking how it was done i think at the end of the day yeah i i i think you know one of the keys uh to understand you know, perhaps why it, it sort of could feel that way or look that way, why there is at times, you know, there's a lot of like uh, duration in certain shots. And then there's other sequences where it's it's a lot that, that seems like it's, it's happening all at once um, is in his own approach to production. So there's a lot of work that was done here with non-professional actors. Um, he he got, you know, he specifically wanted young men. So he was going to like, you know, theater schools and drama academies. And he was just trying to find like young men to, to basically go through this experience, like put them through boot camp. And a lot of sequences in the film, you know, especially when they're socializing, hanging out, you know, drinking, punching each other in the face in barracks. Uh, he, those were like unscripted scenes and he would just basically like let them, improvise and hang out Mm. and his cinematographer uh who was also the camera op for the entire film 
just sort of float around and capture moments and and you know uh, reactions and experiences but but from a position as marsh i think described of like intimacy of sort of like being in the middle of that space and experiencing these things from Nicholas's proximity to them you know when things are happening like we are we are right there we're we're in the showers we are you know in the trenches we are you know submerged in a lake holding our breath uh, and I, I think, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a very conflicting feeling at times because there's a sort of lack of perspective, but there is also a, a very like personal, intensive perspective that we are we're we're subjected to throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I should qualify it just by saying I I, I felt it was overshot relative to something like night and day, just the act of watching them side by side, obviously like that definitely colored the way I I looked at the film, but I do, I do appreciate how limited the perspective can be in Mafi. That was something I walked away from thinking was like a strong element of the film. Yeah. And I think it speaks again to the point that he's really trying to emphasize here, which is the sort of like suffocating experience that Nicholas and and men like him were going through. This is a hostile environment. You know, this isn't just you and your buddies and camaraderie as you're getting off to, to go to war. This is a person who is surrounded on all sides by potential threats, threats to his very existence. Uh, and, and, you know, Marsh, it's kind of interesting that you compared it to Son of Saul because, you know, it has that, to me, same kind of fear uh, in his just existence uh, that, that at any moment, you know, this, this character that he, he starts to build a, a very fleeting kind of romance with Stassen. Like, there's a moment where this other recruit, like, goes and kisses him in the middle of the barracks. Maybe we'll go to the beach next time. almost like kind of gasped a little bit out of fear for these guys. Like if anybody mm-hmm. saw them in that moment, you know, if anybody peeked in and, and, and caught that, that, that little just peck on the lips, like what would happen to these people that, that, that abject terror that he is uh, completely surrounded by at all moments. I'm glad you bring up, uh, Stassen, of course, because I think we've really kind of chewed over the thematic preoccupations of these movies and then also the the, the formal approaches. But we should probably lay out these summer flings, yes. you know, like think about some of this, the summer loving. And it, 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 it takes a few steps for for Sung Nam to uh, 
to to meet his his summer fling there's a few like false starts for for reaching this woman uh initially so of course he's always calling his wife and we we have him at night calling her during the day in korea but one of the first people he encounters is is an ex who he doesn't even recognize initially a woman who says she had six abortions because of their relationship and he can't even recognize her right away on the streets of paris that was a great telltale sign of <laughs> of where we might end up in terms of our summer flings <laughs> in that film oh boy <laughs> yeah not not a great place but it does lead to i think one of the first you know great scenes of the film when Sungnam takes Min Sun to a seedy hotel. And they had dated, I think, you know, he says like 10 years before. And obviously, yeah, it just like washed off him like it was nothing and she's still preoccupied by it. But, uh, you know, one, I think one of the great things about Hong's characters, of course, is that they are uh, just as contradictory and lost and confused as your your average normal person. As all right? of us. And like he he's looking for answers, you know, in Paris. He's like, I'm going to start a new life, you know, fleeing these drug charges, <laughs> which, again, I know South Korea has got like harsh like drug laws. But, it, you know, obviously it's it's more of like a fantasy, you know in his mind right yes, yeah um but yeah they go to the hotel and he's like they're about to have sex and then he pulls out the bible which he just <laughs> sort of like picked up at the hostel because it was just like around and he had nothing to do and so he was he'd been reading the bible and so like his first great idea is like yeah he starts to like take advice from from the Bible, and then, of course, just completely drops that. But he uses it as an excuse uh, not to have sex with his ex-girlfriend mm -hmm. in uh, an extended comic scene where he's, like, quoting from the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's just painful. Hanan님나라에 no. 진짜 예쁘고. 너 때문에 진짜 미치겠어. 아. Yeah, what's he say? Like, let's not lose peace in our minds for one moment of desire. Just pointing to the Bible as evidence. Oh my God, what a coward! And yeah, you know, he uh, <laughs> he tries to he tries to play it straight. You know, uh, I guess uh, for the time being. But yes, what Ryan was alluding to, uh, eventually through uh, Mister Zhang, who runs the hostel, he's hooked up with uh, a couple of art students who are uh, studying painting, and because he's a painter and a painting professor. Why not? We're in Paris, you know? And so he starts to hang out first with Hyunju, uh, and they go to the art museum, and they look at a vagina. Um, but ultimately, <laughs> he is drawn to Yu Zhang, 
uh, her roommate, mm-hmm. who is uh, this kind of mysterious, uh, again, contradictory character um, who sleeps a lot uh, and uh, is also very combative and kind of cheap and narcissistic. Anyway, they, of course fall into, I think, yes, what would be the the central romance of the film. But of course, there are many romances uh, in the film of varying degrees, fits yeah. and starts, you know. <laughs> and and I, I guess it's funny thinking then about the style of this movie. We were talking about the limited perspective in Mafi. Um, there is so much that this film slowly develops throughout its runtime, night and day, of because we don't have the perspective of this woman, we are eventually, because of the little bits of information we're learning about her as the film goes on, there almost becomes an entirely different film outside of the world of this film as we piece together what her day-to-day life might be. Mm -hmm. Like, as you mentioning, she sleeps a lot, but then we start thinking about, wait a minute, there's some confusing things going on here in terms of her enrollment at Beaux Arts and (laughs) and, and her approach to painting and the way she's a little bit cagey about showing her portfolio and work to other people. The limited perspective in Night and Day then leads to an entirely different film that like happens in the back of your mind while you're watching it. Well, he's a master of absence, you know, and I Mm -hmm. think you really get that even with just the chapter titles and the spaces in between. I mean, often we see a single day, just like one mundane action. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's five days later. uh, And it makes us as an audience, you know, wonder there's like a great bit, you know, and like there's a lot of good, you know, punchline sort of like day ending moments right and I think of just one minor one where he's like in his voiceover he's like okay I I have to get money tomorrow tomorrow I'm gonna go I'm gonna get money I'm gonna get a job and then it cuts to two days later and he obviously it doesn't have a job you Mm -hmm. know and it's just like stuff like that which allows you to imagine you know because yeah, there's so much missing uh, from his journey to Paris. I mean, and again, kind of bucked the topic a little bit. Uh, it goes all the way to, to October, you know, by the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, it just yeah. starts rapidly j- jumping ahead as his uh, stay in Paris is extended, you know. Yeah, I regretfully didn't write it down, but I think the first kiss was in October. It was at least after September 21st, the end of summer. <laughs> yeah. But on top of that, like speaking to that idea of like absence, um, you know, it, it isn't just that like we don't see certain things. But again, for me, looking at him, it's it's like what what other people see that he doesn't, you know, and, and what we can see that that seemingly he can't or won't or doesn't want to see, you mm-hmm. know, specifically referring to her character, you know, uh, when other people are talking about her to him. They're not speaking very highly of oh, this girl. She's got a bad rep, you know? <laughs> I mean, and again, going back to the portfolio thing, at a certain point, you know, the other art student that that he's talking to, uh, you know, she's like flat out like, she's a plagiarist. Like she plagiarized her whole portfolio, right? Like she just copied some other student's work. And then yeah. as she points out, now it's given all the Korean art students a bad rep, you know, <laughs> right? Like, oh, yeah. so they this girl is is... Yes, like all these things that you sort of described about her, 
they're given to us and, and we even like get to kind of see them on display you know how self-centered she can be and and you know all the things that he's sort of describing i kept kind of laughing about these things that he's into that that you know he wants to share with her that other characters are like she hates that she she hates oysters, oysters. you know like yeah, yeah. he's like really <laughs> excited to eat oysters and 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 he wants to share them with her and her friends like she hates oysters you know she's she's disgusted by them or whatever but she's like I love oysters you know the funny thing is like Hyunju like she's actually like the good girl the nice girl yeah. and she's got so much in common with him and he is just fascinated and enamored by this you know as far as other people have described her kind of like a toxic personality you know yeah and i think it's so funny too how like he becomes more and more attracted to her and more and more infatuated with her as he's learning these things that are could be attributed to a toxic personality and i guess that is something that weirdly connects these films and even broadly thinking about summer loving Sometimes summer loving has that element of danger that really, you know, brings people together. I, I also, too, while watching Mafi, gasped when they kissed in the barracks because all I could think about, I, I like couldn't even think about the intimacy. I was just thinking about the possibility of who saw that yeah. and what the repercussions of that would be. But then on the flip side, yeah, night and day, the more he learns about this plagiarizing woman that is pretending that she's in school and is giving all of these Korean students a bad name, it just makes him want to suck on her toes even more. Yeah, and we, yeah, we should say really too, that's kind of where the, the summer romance truly, you know, lights a fire in him is he's having oysters uh, with Hyunju in their apartment. Uh, uh, and Yuzhong is just sleeping next to them because she sleeps all the time. And as we learn, of course, it's because she's like a fraud and doesn't go to school and has no job or whatever. <laughs> uh, although claims she works in a restaurant, we don't see that. Um, but they're eating oysters, and it's then, you know, in characteristic Hong fashion, it's like a two-shot. Almost every shot is a two-shot, unless it's then, like, panning and revealing things like it does in this scene where uh, it all of a sudden then, like, pans over to her feet sticking out of her, <laughs> sticking out of her blanket. And at that moment, uh, Sung Nam is... Uh, he's on tilt. Oh, you yeah. Know? And a uh, fire is lit inside him. He's going full Tarantino. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's uh, there's, you know, a, two amazing dream sequences in this film. And the first one occurs, of course, shortly after that incident where uh, Hong, like, you know, Buñuel and other art house filmmakers, uh, he does not care to distinguish uh, a dream from reality formally. No. So in both dreams, you know the uh, first time watching like i remember again being swept up in oh this is actually happening and oh, then yeah. of course you realize it's not but uh sung nam yeah he goes to their apartment and basically like breaks in while she's sleeping and then starts to suck on her toes <laughs> uh and it is the yeah it is just the most you know cringe shit possible Ugh. Uh, it's fucking awesome. And it turns out, no, he's just, you know, had a little like illness, a little bit of fever that we see in these fragments where like Mr. Zhang's coming to give him medicine, you know, in bed. Yeah. No, it was just a dream. <laughs> a toe sucking you know? fever dream. That's all I know. <laughs> I do think that these dreams being completely unsignaled also adds a layer to this film where you could think about almost any scene in Night and Day is potentially 
not even really happening because it's so limited to his perspective. I think that because Hong generally refuses to signal whether his sequences are fantasy or reality, in a way, our perspective is unreliable. Oh, and we yeah. have to kind of take every scene, every diary entry, if that's how we want to read these little dates, as perhaps evidence that this might not actually be playing out the way we are seeing it play out. Sure. You know? I mean, it's it's all, as always, it's a matter of perception. I mean, even his first infatuation with her comes from really the only nice thing we see uh, her or really most people do in this movie when she gets like a homeless guy a sandwich on the streets of Paris. And he just like sees this from a distance and is like, who is this person? Mm-hmm. She's so beautiful. Oh, you yeah. know, and he's just, yeah, yeah he starts you know, going down that, going down that rabbit hole. But, uh, though, though I should say this is even further complicated to contradict what I just said, that the tagline of this movie, I don't know if you both saw it is everything is as it seems. (laughs) (laughs) Is that Sunam telling us that, you know, like who, (laughs) who is the one giving us that message? Everything is as it seems, you know, how many of these dreams are just a reality depending on how we, perceive them right yeah it's fun i mean it's it's meant to i think add to the 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 general disorientation of someone going uh you know from one country to another that they're totally unfamiliar with i mean i i really uh got myself kind of um uh, caught up in that the 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 general discomfort of being a stranger in a strange place and not knowing the streets and not knowing where to get cigarettes and not knowing, you know, uh, uh, you know, how people like to socialize and, and, and all those kinds of things. So I think it just kind of, it's meant to sort of put you in this place of, of feeling very unmoored, whether that's from like our waking life and our dream life or our sense of, of location of, of geography. Cause again, like, you know, there's no, uh, sequence shots in this, there's no, or I shouldn't say there's, there's like no establishing shots of at any time, like right. where he is in Paris, you know, he's, he is just sort of wandering through this city over again, months, I guess, you know, that, that, you know, we, we totally lose track of, of entire days or weeks at, at times. And, and so I think that it, it really puts you in a good headspace for sort of only being able to hold on to very small things at, at, at certain moments. And, and, and perhaps yes, to the tagline, like, you know, just having to trust like that, you know, what we're seeing in that moment and, and what that moment is doing to us as an audience, whether it's making us laugh or making a squirm in our seat, you know, it's the entire kind of experience of, of not really knowing where he's going and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I also think then it's interesting how we've brought up the fact that these dream sequences aren't really signaled formally by Hong. There is that moment that you addressed earlier, Andy, um, from Mafi. That is a, a memory of the filmmaker, and and in that moment, the style does shift a little bit. We do big time, yeah. We get an extended long take for this memory, and at first, I actually wasn't super impressed by that, and was slightly ir- irritated just because I feel like I'm conditioned now because 
long takes are so in vogue, you know, and when you get things like, oh, True Detective did a whole episode that's one long take or, or whatever happened with that, you know, it made me think of that. Um, but then I think it's really interesting now knowing that that was based off of one of his memories and that because of that, there is a shift in style from how the rest of the film looks and feels because as opposed to literally adapting the source material, he's adapting an element of his memory. So it's playing out a little bit differently than the rest of the film because yeah, that whole sequence is we're linked to him son of Saul style as it is just an extended long take following this boy around. Um, and that shot probably lasts a good chunk of maybe like six, seven minutes at least. Oh yeah. And again though, you know, I think that the, the, the reason for that shift perhaps, uh, is that, you know, this memory is very clearly like this, this, this first major trauma that his character Mm -hmm has experienced that, that he has experienced, you know, he's a a young, very young boy, you know, uh, preteen, I'm assuming. Uh, and he's with his family at a, at a public pool or camping ground somewhere. Uh, again, another sort of summer vibe. You know, uh, from that. Yes, sequence. summer breeze is playing. <laughs> yeah, it's summer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, he he is you know just sort of like he goes to the to the showers to to take a shower after swimming all day with his parents. They're talking about going to have something to eat. It's this really innocuous summer moment, and and in the showers, he's just sort of looking at another young man who's who's washing himself, and then he is just beset upon by this like ogre of a South African man that just grabs him by the wrist and is accusing him of being a sex pervert. You know, this like young boy who, who, who doesn't even really understand what sex is yet in his life is then mm-hmm. like physically dragged from this shower to like the, the manager's office of this place. And, and I mean, it is like a, one of the more unsettling scenes I've seen in a film uh, that explores this kind of material in in quite a long time. I mean, it's just this, this horrifying moment of embarrassing and, yeah, like psychological, emotional trauma. But again, it goes back to this idea of being, like, trapped. There's no cutting away from this moment. Like, he is mm. imprisoned by this moment. We can't look away. We can't cut away for safety and security. We are just standing there reliving this this horrifying experience with him. Again, a, a very kind of like suffocating feeling. So for me, I think it's like, it is a, a, a very like conceptual use for a long take beyond yeah. even just the sort of like, wow, look what we were able to kind of pull off. As much as it is like a technical you know, a, a technical moment and like, wow, look, there's this whole big kind of like summer camp atmosphere in the seventies that's, that's captured and look at all the extras. Like to me again, like the, the essence of it is just us having our faces shoved into the traumatic experience of like a young gay man being basically like, uh, uh, like forcibly outed in front of, strangers you know in a very public place uh right but it's also tied into other moments that we experience in the film you know there's a lot of like other moments that nicholas has in showers with other men and Mm -hmm. they are also filmed in a very like claustrophobic way and so this dream sequence is also there 
to add further context to that, to his phobia, you could say perhaps of having to like bathe and shower in front of other men. And again, the fear of being outed in this very dangerous place, you know, what could be a more dangerous place for him? How intensely he basically like focuses on the wall in front of him, you know, again, afraid to, to signal who he is mm-hmm. because of what he's already experienced, you know? And it's such a tragic transition from the scene that comes before um, this this memory because the memory happens just after he kisses the man in the barracks and he's walking off and leaving him behind because he he's not been granted leave, um, Stassen, the man that Nicholas has kissed. And Nicholas is walking off and he has a smile starting to appear on his face and that's when the summer breeze kicks in and you you get that feeling of, okay, summer 11, I see, I see what's going on here. But then this memory that we transition into is so tragic and so suffocating. I just remember feeling really emotional thinking about how that moment of connection in that dangerous space triggered this horrible memory for him. Mm-hmm. That even if he briefly had something like Summer Breeze echoing in the back of his mind, what comes to the forefront is this horrible episode from his childhood that makes him shrink back at yeah. that tenderness that he just experienced, you know? That reminds him where he is, you know? Right, uh, right. And that's, that's, I guess, the key difference between these two romances, you know, is that for him, he finds in Stassen, uh, tenderness, you know, he finds some form of affection in such a, a hostile environment, you know, from the minute he is conscripted and he sort of like gets onto this train, it is like, you know, the, the director takes us into, again, you want to talk about like Fantasia, like a Fantasia of, toxic masculinity of all these just macho animals testing one another, fighting, puking, drinking, uh, insulting one another. It is like the most harsh environment any human can find themselves in. And and so that's like what Stassen comes to represent, this, this tender touch, this kindness in a very, very, very cruel world, not just for like a gay man, but, but for anyone, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's a really like brutal world that we live in. And, and Stassen is, is just this figure that, that gives him hope. But as you said, like that, that, that brief flicker of hope is, is immediately snatched away, not just because of his psychological and emotional trauma, but also because when he returns from this memory, from his leave, Stassen is gone. And as he discovers, Stassen has been, quote, found out and taken to Ward 22, you know? So again, that that sort of realization, it all hits him again. He is not safe, ever. Whereas, you know, the... The, for me, like the romance, you know, again, if you're comparing the two, it's like in night and day, we, we get a little glimpse of that. You know, he seems so like, oh, I'm so lonely. I'm so, I just need some affection. But he's going after like the most horrible person who is throughout most of the film, 
rejecting him at every turn, you know? How many times <laughs> he comes on to her in ways that are, you know, yes, cringe-inducing, uh, but man, he is like... This girl seems to want nothing to do with him. I should also point out too, and again, why I saw him as like such a toxic, sort of just disgusting guy is because he's also in those phone calls we see with his wife, you know, talking about how much he loves her and yeah. misses her. And at one point, I think he even asks her if she'd be willing to like just sort of masturbate for him on the phone. Yeah. You know, like I mean, this guy is like a fucking pig. You know? But I think it's, you know, in, in Hong's world, uh, multiple things can be true, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just as in life. Because I do think that's, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I do think, like, seeing him with his wife late in the film, you know, maybe gives new perspective on it or at least uh, shed some light on it. But, uh, yeah, I was thinking, too, like, about... Uh, Mafi and that like whole flashback. Uh, it's funny because they're on, they they get the weekend off and they're like let's go and then it like flashes back to this just like horrible thing that happened to him instead of seeing them out you know on the town having a good time or whatever and it got me thinking about the film how it denies the audience uh, like the cliche moments of male bonding that you find in a war film. Right. Um, so it sort of like remains in that perspective and it is, you know, like in some ways I found it to be like, I did want to see like more scenes with people, but then you're, you're, you know, you're sort of like running that risk of falling into those cliches. But on the flip side, it's like, all right, like, I felt at a distance from the character, you know, he's very, he doesn't talk yeah. a lot, right. you know, in the film. And it's all this internal kind of energy, which definitely comes across. It's not a slight on him, but uh, he's hard to access kind of cinematically because, yeah. well, I mean, yeah, I guess really it's just this like hostile environment is so oppressive, <laughs> yeah. you know? And I think that's it. You know, he's, he's afraid to get close to people because you know, getting close means revealing. And, and for him, like he is simply trying to survive and to remain hidden, you know, as much as he can. And he sort of struggles like with Song that. Nam. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In, in different ways, you know, like, cause he's hiding too. I mean, I think sure. that's like such a big part of it is how fucking embarrassed he is by what happened. You know, one minute you're smoking weed with some college students and the next, you're like on the lamb, you know? And again, yeah. uh, it's, you know, it's nothing but self owns in Hong's universe, right? He's meant to be the, the butt of the cosmic humor at play here. Yeah. He is super embarrassed. There's an, my favorite edit in the whole film is this like moment of self-awareness for him of just this feeling of dear God, what the hell am I doing? And this is after he's learned that Yu Jong has been expelled, is not enrolled in Bo Arts, and they're having like a day together. And she cutely says to him, like, okay, I'll see you after school. And he's like, okay, great. And it cuts, <laughs> and he's in church with his head like flat on the back of the he's bench, napping. you know, hiding it. Yeah, napping, just thinking like, oh, Dear God, like, what the hell am I doing here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, this is a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. You know, as they're 
romance, their flirtation, whatever you want to call it, as it like kind of develops throughout the film, that's what, you know, really makes it so amusing is the way that they're both sort of projecting these lies yeah. about themselves, you know? And, and yet, like you said, to the layered quality, in spite of that, like they slowly start to develop something that at least on the surface <laughs> appears to be genuine affection and attraction to one another, you know, that, that for him at first, it seems like perhaps is all, this is all just the thrill of the chase. You know, he kind of like is yeah. constantly trying to sort of like reinvent himself to, to win her over, you know, at a certain point, he even like kind of tries out a, like a bad boy kind of attitude because he thinks that that's what she's into, you know? In spite of that, it does start to build into something where I can see these two people actually being happy with one another. Maybe the walls are starting to break down. The the projections that they're putting out are 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 starting to, you know, dissipate a bit. But I mean, again, you talk about layers, just when you feel things are going a certain way, uh man, Hong Sang Su really pulls the rug out from underneath you and and uh, a certain interaction just changes everything. A certain phone call changes everything that we felt about these people. Oh yeah, the web of lies gets even larger, right? As well, you know, again, I and I think too like <laughs> this movie to me is like so fucking funny, but then when you think about it, it's so fucked up, you know? And I guess oh, that's yeah. like that's like the Hong magic, you know? But like oh, we yeah. should mention that there's like again a series of like just gut punches that are delivered to Sung Nam. Number 1, Min Sun his ex has committed suicide and he reads about it in the Parisian Korean paper. Yeah. Presumably because of uh, him, you know, throwing the Bible at her and rejecting her in such a horrible right. way. Yeah. Her loveless French marriage, you know, there was a lot of darkness implied there and, and she seemed, yeah, you know, not great. And he was not helpful. That's for sure. Right. And again, this information is delivered to us in this just deadpan Hong Sang Su comedic way where we have a slow, zoom of him holding up this magazine as he's ripping out the little news clipping that describes how she committed suicide and where you know her life and who she was living with as if he's gonna save it later yeah. for his scrapbook <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah my friend's vacation you know yeah <laughs> yeah and then uh yu Zhang tells him that uh the time that they had sex at the beach in doville uh Mine, may uh, she may be pregnant, you know, and again, that's a whole thing we don't have to get into, but it's a very uh, sort of stereotypical Hong move. Go to the beach, you know, he's always going to the beach with his romances and uh, and he pressures her into 
the sex. By oh yeah. The way. Well, and it's yeah again in the most yeah just horrible sort of sequence of events. She's like, uh, "This is a really bad day. You should go get a condom." And he's like, uh, I, "I don't know. France. Yeah, I don't know where to... in France. I don't know what to do." You know. <laughs> and she's just like, "No, go do it." And he half acidly goes to the store, and then in his voiceover admits that he was just like too embarrassed to look actually for them, and just like went back and then made her have unprotected sex. That scene <laughs> hit me so hard, and and was so pitch perfect because of. Uh, how I related to an experience that I had that was very, very similar. When I was in China in like 2007, I went over there with this girl I had, I barely knew. I was just starting to see her and she moved to China and she was like, well, I guess you could come to China if you want to keep trying to see me. So I fucking did. I went to China basically for the most expensive and longest distance booty call of my life, you know? And, and we barely knew each other and I'm in China. I don't know. And she's a bad guide because she barely knows China and we're stumbling around and, and, you know, we, we eventually, we had our, our moment of intimacy, but the condom broke and she freaked out about it and she was very upset. And she's like, I'm in China. And she's like, I, I would feel so much better if we had the morning after pill. And she's like, you know, you can get it over the counter here. She's like, but I'm going to make you go get it. And I was like, um, oh, oh, okay. Well, I, I, I'm in China. I don't, <laughs> I, and I had that in like, this, the, dude, this, this wild experience where she looked it up on the internet, wrote it down in Chinese characters, and then handed me the note and was like, go to a pharmacy and give them this. So I did. I went to a pharmacy and just handed them this basically like post-it note that asked for the give morning me all your after money. pill. Yeah, <laughs> give me all your oral contraceptives or whatever, you know? And, and I just handed it and it was like, dude, the, the, the lady that was working the counter was like a 70 year old Chinese grandma, you know, just like a little old lady. And I just am handing her this note that's asking for this thing. And she looked at it, smiled, looked at it, read it again, then looked at me and her eyes. I will never forget the look in her eyes, you know? And it was just building worse, where she called people over. They were having a whole debate about it. People kept coming over and looking at the note and then looking at me. <laughs> I'm making this huge scene. Oh God, dude. I was just like, that, that scene in this movie was I was I, again I was like on the floor laughing at the the embarrassment of it all you know yeah that sounds exactly like the scene in uh, take the money and run the Woody Allen movie where there he he writes down like give me all the money I have a gun and they're like well it, what I'm what I see here is I have a gub but that's a plain D <laughs> sir so I'm imagining all of these pharmacists arguing over the like scratched you know Chinese characters and just being like what is he asking for yeah <laughs> you know? dude they were shaking their head at me i'm sure they were having some whole big conversation about you know these like fucking americans you know just coming Holy over shit. here and just wrecking up the place yeah summer loving yeah and then after all that uh sung nam gets a phone call from his wife saying that she is pregnant and urging him to come home as soon as possible because he's really been at this point putting it off you know he's sort of like Kind of half-assedly, maybe like, oh, I'll get a job here or whatever. But like, he's like immediately rejected for a job, you know. And he's just bumming around the hostel, smoking cigarettes. I mean, I think like obviously one reason I love this movie so much is it's a movie about a guy 
smoking on vacation. Yeah. And it goes through the logistics of that. It goes through, you know, showing him uh, acquire cigarettes, walking outside to smoke, all these, you know, constantly, of course. Um, and so, yeah, he gets this phone call and uh, fantasy time is over. Yeah. Or is it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> again, this is the moment where the film really, it all really started to come together for me. Like what this thing was about and like who this guy is, you know, because it's, it's so, it's so, it's such a fine sort of ballet of, of making a sort of, you know, kind of like empathize with this guy, like him, hope that he finds love, starts this new life you know, oh yeah, he's a good guy. You know, he's like all of us. We're all we're all kind of shitheads in our own way, but he's a pretty decent guy. And now he's in this sort of like he's at this like fulcrum of like two women telling him that he got them pregnant, you know, and, and what's he going to do? Is he going to like, you know, do the right thing in Paris or is he gonna do the right thing in South Korea? And is he going to be honest with with either of them, you know? <laughs> Uh, and the answer, answer is no, no. absolutely <laughs> not absolutely yeah. not so he goes on the run again yeah you know? <laughs> exactly god that's really the brilliance of it all i mean like everything is doubled you know throughout the movie mm-hmm. and that's a classic kong thing there's you know the two art students and the two pregnancies and you know all these things reverberating uh in that way. Yeah. And you know, it's an interesting connection um, between the two films in that regard, because, you know, I read an interview with, with her Hermanus talking about Mophi and, you know, why the project was, was very appealing to him specifically, both a challenge and, and appealing to him. And he, he said, you know, you know, if you think about uh, apartheid South Africa, it's like the most binary society that's, that's like perhaps ever existed. You know, he's like, South Africa was a society of binaries, black, white, gay, straight, communist, capitalist, or whatever, you know, just these, these, these hard distinctions of mm-hmm. with us, against us, us or them. And so for him, his project was really about sort of trying to show how wrong those binary distinctions are, you know, and to sort of get us to examine how binary distinctions are forced upon us, built, maintained, fought for, defended, killed for by states, by societies, structures of power. And so I think both of these films on a certain level are are encouraging us to to look past binaries, you know. In the case of Hong Sang Su, it's it's really about, you know, I guess even the binaries of questioning like is there such a thing as like a good or a bad person, you know? Like sure. there is yeah. no such thing. And that's really I think more broadly a thing that he's interested in as a filmmaker. Again, like the the gray area of existence, the gray areas of of romance, the gray areas of of being a a, a a a South Korean or hell, just a Korean, right? Again, you know the the distinction that he plays with between North and South, and then the moment of trying to sort of like tear that down. But of course, it just comes off as as pure comedy. Again, just a comedy of errors. That's really for right. him what life is. It's just a a protracted series of vignettes that are all wrapped up in one grand comedy of errors that's existence, you know? 
Yeah, where everything is as it seems, and there is a false binary of fantasy and reality, right? You know, and I, that final dream sequence in Night and Day is so amazing because, again, it's just, I had seen this movie before and obviously just had forgotten so much of it. I had seen it years ago. And again, he doesn't really signal that we're entering a dream. I mean, the characters are going to Well, bed. there's the tilt up to the cloud painting. Right, you know? but, I, you know, it tilts up to the cloud painting. Like, that's pr- as explicit as he'll get as yeah. signaling a dream. But again, when we enter this dream... <laughs> It plays out formally exactly the same as all of the other vignettes in the film. It's totally believable that he, after fleeing France, now fled his wife and returned to France to connect with the a separate woman. Like, it was so... It was just nuts. It's the art student from before. Right, it's the art student that was plagiarized that had her portfolio stolen by his initial <laughs> summer fling. Yeah. And he has a whole new life with her. And I was like, oh my God, because it's totally believable, right? And then, of course, it lasts for a long time. And when we return to Korea, he wakes up from this dream. And, of course, he's been saying this woman's name <laughs> throughout the night as he's been envisioning this. But it's so fantastic that as he's dreaming of you know missed opportunities and lost love in France... It's for a totally different woman than he mm-hmm. had the summer fling with, and that's where the <laughs> confrontation arises with his wife. It's just brilliant. It's so I, funny. Yeah. I mean, the guy is such a fucking piece of shit. I'm sorry. Again, I just keep, you know, because it, it, it's like, it, it's really, this guy is just plagued by, you know, wanting or fantasizing about things, chasing things that he doesn't have. He's got his head in have. the clouds. Oh. Yeah. You know, and, and, and. And whatever he doesn't have in front of him at any moment is what is really most appealing to him. You know, I mean, like that's the essence really of this guy's sort of like stumbling through life. You know, it's like, you know, when he's away from his wife, he sometimes calls her up and is is romanticizing her and being back with her. And then, you know, we see them back together at a certain point and it's like, wow, this sucks, you know? And and even his pursuit of Yijong and he has this other woman who is probably someone he could actually have these things that he's fantasizing about. And then as you point out, only in the end, he can kind of circle back to it all and go, yeah, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should have, when we were having oysters together, maybe that was the girl I should have, you know, and could have built such a wonderful romantic <laughs> right. life with that I'm, that I'm dreaming about, that I'm fantasizing about, you know? Yeah, that dream, the dream is incredible because, again, it's so just, like, self-lacerating as in his dream, they're, like, you know, he's asking his wife, now wife, who's this character who's in one scene of the movie, to go visit, you know, his ex who's ill. And they're, like, I'm going to give her this this vase, you know? (laughs) Uh, And it becomes this, yeah, this scene where they're, like, carrying the vase and going to visit her, and then they break it because of a guy that passes by on a bike, and he's just, like, like berating her in his dream again. uh, The the answer to the question, you know, is he going to grow? Is he going to learn? I mean, even at one point in the film, he's like, 
My whole new thing is I'm not going to judge people. And then he immediately starts judging people in action and voiceover, you know? So, like, this night and day, almost the kind of, like, schizophrenic, you know, behavior of of human beings. Just one thing or the other. Yeah. And that's exactly what, you know, again, in a a very different way, Hermanus is playing with in in Mophi, you know? Uh, He's sort of establishing characters and who they are what we can think about them and like as nicholas progresses through his military service like as he goes you know certain things and certain people who we feel like we understand and we know uh they become totally different you know to nicholas and and to us and in our eyes you know there's one character particularly that gets established very early on uh, as sort of, I guess, a, a, a friend, you know, somebody that, again, he can find some sort of safety with, some sort of uh, kinship with, some sort of camaraderie with, is this character Sax, you know? And, and at first, when Nicholas is, like, on this train and being thrust into this, like, horrifyingly, you know, macho, like, you know, nightmare, uh, this character Sax seems to be a sort of like liberal or progressive figure. You know, he he's criticizing the the indoctrination VHS tape that they're mm-hmm. all watching and gets singled out for that and punished. You know, there's another moment where they're cleaning their guns after all this this like brutal physical punishment that they've been going through, and they they sing a Rodriguez song together, Sugar Man. Which you know, one thing to say about the movie is that some <laughs> some for me of the music choices were a little on the sentimental, you know, on the kind of like, oh, what an obvious choice yeah. here, you know? But like I really disliked the the music they used. I thought the original score was kind of interesting because yeah. it was like really Yeah, these like brain grating violins, you know, adding yeah. to the tension. But that stuff was cool. But when they used classical music or pop songs, it all felt like pretty misplaced. Yeah. Whereas Hong just uses one Beethoven swell over and over again, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just really hitting that. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, you know, like Sax and him, you know, they're 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 bonding and and Sax seems to be like this kind of like again, like a, a sort of bright light in all of this darkness. And yet when they get to Angola, when they eventually like get through boot camp and they're they're there, they're on the border like the sax guy just starts falling apart and he becomes one of the more like outwardly aggressive soldiers towards you know the 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 angolans that they come across or the namibians or just basically like the the black citizens that they 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 come across you know like the other people are telling them like dude sax chill out you know and again i think that's like herman is saying to us that like you know there are no easy distinctions to be made about people and and how they're going to react to stress and to being put in these impossible places. You know, just when we think we can, you know, rely on someone or believe in someone or that somebody is going to be an outlet for good, they let us down. You know, they, they are ground down. They are broken by these again like machines of hate and power and and violence right i think one of my favorite moments in the movie is when he does come home after his service and he has dinner with his parents who are 
you know, he asks like, what are we celebrating? And they say, well, we're celebrating you came home. And he sort of ironically says like, ah, yeah, in, in one piece. Mm-hmm. And when he says that, the camera lingers on his mother's face. And you can see it in her eyes. She sees her son is no longer in one piece. This is a man who has been shattered into thousands, millions of pieces, right? Like this experience has been just brutalizing for him. And I thought that that was a great moment of shifting the perspective a little bit, or even perhaps the son, Nicholas, seeing that in his mother's eyes, like him noticing that she is picking up on the fact that he went through something extremely traumatic and has not come back the same man he was when he left. Mm -hmm. But like Sungnam, he now has facial hair. And I think that's a strong (laughs) connection between the films is that they start (laughs) off clean cut. And by the end, they both have like kind of goatee situations going on. Um, Summer loving will put hair on your chest, you know? Yeah. That's for damn sure. <laughs> and yeah, he, he gets to meet up with, with Stassen, you know, after after the service. And, you know, like night and day, it's a, it's not a happy ending uh, necessarily. Well, again, to the prompt, you know, Ryan, and, and it's why I felt that Mophie was a, was a very good choice for the idea of like summer love and, and a summer romance is to me, there are temporary things. They are fleeting. You know, a summer romance is something that lasts the summer. You know, it's this experience Mm -hmm. we have and then we move on from, you know, we leave summer camp, we go back home, you know, we, we leave the townie at the, at the resort in, in Wisconsin or whatever, you know, (laughs) we go back to our, our, our wife in, in Korea, that sort of thing. And, you know, that's exactly what happens with, with him and Stassen, you know, they had this connection and this moment of, of, you know, fleeting love. And then he goes and sees what Ward 22 did to him in, I think, one of the most, like, subtly heartbreaking uh, exchanges uh, I've seen in, in recent years in a, in a romance. If you can even call this that, you know? Right. Is him sort of showing up and being like, hey, we're out, we're out of the military. And, like, you know, we can just be together me and you and and like Stassen even like the moment when you know because he goes to his his parents house he sort of like tracks them down when Stassen enters the room just even like the look on his face he looks like a zombie you know he looks yeah like yes something very very bad happened to him looks like he got zapped Yes. And I mean, he, from what I even like discovered about Ward 22, he probably did get zapped. You know, it's, it's like, I kind of thought about it in this way that, you know, when they kind of try to get back together, when Nicholas finds him, you know, it's like in this horrible place, all of this darkness, their very brief kind of connection with one another was just like this, like flickering, very, very tenuous wick lighted on a candle you know and it's like in that moment when he goes to see if the candle's still lit you know they have this 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 attempt at reconnecting and it's like it's just blown out you know by this world by this country by this place and it is 
Yeah, it is such a bummer. <laughs> it is so, so It bad. is. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the line that will linger with me from this film is them on this beautiful summer's day after having driven in this like gorgeous red convertible down to the beach. The sun is shining, not a cloud in the sky, and yet they're in the water and you think there's going to be this moment of connection and Stassen just says, water's too cold. And he swims out and gets out. Yeah, he specifically says, it's too cold for me. Mm-hmm. Heartbreaking, really. Well, uh, these were our films for Summer Lovin', Ryan. They were, uh, they, they, they burned very briefly, but were extinguished in the end. Oof. Yeah. Not what you expected, uh, I have to imagine. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a good question. When I had selected the topic, it was because I knew that you would both buck up against it in an interesting <laughs> way. And that's what I was hoping for. I wasn't hoping for, you know, any real lovey-dovey stuff, you know, th- this week. So I would say you both delivered. In a way, it is what I expected. Um, I like to expect the unexpected uh, w- with both of you. But, you know, I guess when I was thinking about the topic and I was thinking about films that that fit the theme uh, when I was trying to decide, like, oh, is this something I actually want to want to cover? I was thinking about, you know, one that's a bit of a classic and another one I saw recently. Um, Of course, there's Summer with Monica, the the Ingmar Bergman movie. Um, Big fan. Really love it. I'm one, you know, I don't court with Jonathan Rosenbaum necessarily on his opinion of Ingmar Bergman. I love Ingmar Bergman. Uh, I really enjoy that type of, of cinema. Uh, so Summer with Monica, really beautiful film, early Bergman, uh, with the, that could be paired with another sum, summer interlude, another Bergman film. They sort of like came out back to back and are both like exploring. He's got a know. lot of like summer romance movies. He does. He does. But, you know, so one I saw really recently that I would I would love to just emphatically recommend is the 1986 film His Motorbike, Her Island. It's a Japanese film directed by the great Nobuhiko Obayashi, uh, who many, of course, know for directing Haozu, um, but he's directed a, a remarkable amount of features. And yeah, this film is is very lovingly looking at a, a summer love and romance that is, you know, set on motorcycles, right? And of course, you know, a, a summer romance that burns bright still may, you know, crash and burn in a, in a really tragic way. And I don't necessarily necessarily think it's a spoiler i think it's built into the film but you know it is a fleeting romance but it's a gorgeous film that shifts back and forth between black and white and color film sort of evoking the way a summer romance might feel uh so that's something i would uh, definitely highly recommend anybody check out uh so yeah so that that's uh it's my topic this week i now pass the torch on onto you marsh so so what do we have to deliver for you next week well, very recently, I had the opportunity to see Menace to Society on the big screen on film, and that was a, a very enjoyable experience to revisit a, a film I consider to be sort of like formative and in my life. And uh, I followed that up with uh, tracking down Forrest Whitaker's Strapped uh, from the early 90s, his directorial debut. And then I rewatched Poetic Justice, and I hope by now you get the idea of where I'm going with this. Uh, next episode, I want you to bring me Tales from the Hood. Nice. And, and all that, that that entails. 
Dude, I love Tales from the Hood, by the way. Side note, that's such <laughs> yeah. a good movie. Yeah. I watch bring, that every Halloween. Literally yeah. bring me Tales from the Hood. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's going to be so hard not to pick that. Top five horror omnibus of all time or horror anthology. One of the greatest. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Forget for all what you think you will. There is no more anyone. You is a rove. Bloederige, etterige, nutteloze rove. And it's our work om you to make man to probeer maak. Bestaan jullie? Ja, lekker aan. Ik kan niet horen, nee. Ja, lekker aan.